you know, you're not sure how authentic should we be with each other, really? So would it be okay if I told you, I didn't tell Kathy I was going to say this, we had a fight in front of this building this morning. Is that authentic enough for you? Okay, maybe not quite a fight, but it was a skirmish. You know, we're right out there. It's like, Lord, you should have seen this coming. You know, we were ready. You know, the old, old habits die hard. The enemy's there. And, you know, that's not coincidental. And, you know, probably a lot of us, by the way, I confessed my sin. So I'm waiting for my wife to confess her sin. That's <laughs> just kidding. And we prayed on the way in. Okay, so that was my authentic morning. Thank you. On the way to church to be holy, to be like Jesus. Right? So that's authenticity. Sorry. This is free, by the way. This isn't part of the message. I, I'm being authentic. I did want to say, too, though, uh, Jim Lord, Jonathan Shum are with us this morning. We, we value guys like this who are willing to say, really, um, we love our city, and we want our city to be a place that we can raise our kids. It's a healthy environment for everybody to come and be a part. The election is the 7th. I'd ask you to give consideration just for helping guys like Jim and Jonathan. And could you guys stand up so folks that don't know you can stand? Yeah, yeah. Just so folks, you know, if you wanted to talk. um, We value guys like this that are willing to put themselves and their families on the line to serve their community. So consider, if you would, uh, helping them out. Okay, so authenticity behind and uh, the message ahead. Are we okay? (laughs) 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 Oh, yeah. For some of you, this is your first time here. For others, it's your last, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, okay. With that, to the message, to the message, uh, you know, this is after today, uh, we've got eight Sundays left here. This is fairly remarkable. Uh, We've been here since 2001. We've been here 14 years. It's hard. There's a number of old timers in here. It's hard to believe it's been 14 years. And so we're in our last couple of months here. We're going to be moving on. You know, CarePairvel's been a great fit for us. and We think we've been a great fit for them. We hope so. But they've been our host for these 14 years. You know, they were charging us so little rent, I kid you not, back in the day that we would give them gifts just to say, gosh, we think you need more for our time here than you're actually charging us. And We've raised the payments to them over the years, but they've been more than gracious. We've been thrilled to be here. They've been great hosts. And we have tried to be good guests as well. And part of that is reflected in the way that CarePairville has some house rules that they have asked us to abide by. So, for instance, when they remodeled their theater, they said, please don't bring food and drink into that theater. We'd like to keep the seats and the new carpet stain-free. So we tell folks, you know, let's not do that. That's one of their house rules. That's not what we're going to do. We'll keep the food and the drinks out of the theater. Or just things like, would you tell us if doors are left open? Would you let us know if there's something that needs to be addressed? If we've left something out, if we've damaged something or whatever, they'll tell us, hey, you know, you need to pay attention to this or address this. It's all been good. 
we've tried to respect them by respecting the rules of their household. Now, Kathy and I have uh, house rules too. Kids, you know that if you came to my house and started jumping on my furniture, I would politely ask you to stop. Because one of the rules in our house is we don't jump on the furniture, right? And I'll bet if I went to your house, there'd be house rules you have there too. You know, when we occupy our new building, there will be some house rules there too. I don't know, they're not spelled out yet, but I can imagine a few of them, right? Like, if I use the building or if my group uses the building, probably one of the appropriate rules would be that we'd leave it clean and ready for the next person or group that will come through. Or that we've checked the schedule for the building to make sure we're not interrupting someone else's meeting when we show up. Or that we turn the alarm system on when we leave. Things like this. All of us, whether we are very conscious about it or not, all of us, wherever we live, we have rules for the things done or not done in our house. And guys, this doesn't make us rules keepers sort of as a small-minded way of life because rules, the appropriate, the healthy, the good rules, they don't squash life. They make room for life. House rules make room for life. And so as we talk about some things this morning, I want to make sure that what we're hearing is not a rules-oriented, rules-keeping view of life, but an understanding of life that God has rules for His house, for His household, for His family members like you and me. They're not so that we can have rules to keep. They're to make room for life. They're to help us. They're not to squash us. If I start talking about rules, by the way, and commands, there is a temptation for many of us to sort of hunker down in our chair and it's this moment like, oh no, Mike's getting into the twilight zone of legalism. We're talking about rules and we're talking about commands. But you know, the reality, I'm not sure I know a legalist, okay, maybe one or two of you, in our church. Legalism is not what we major on, but legalism is is a view of life in which we say basically, by pulling ourselves up from our own bootstraps by what we can accomplish we're going to be okay with God and we'll be okay with each other. And of course, the gospel message is entirely contrary to that. It says we're okay with God, we're okay with each other based on what Jesus has done for us, based on grace. So please don't, please don't hear anything I'm saying this morning about legalism. We're not talking about legalism. And I find this interesting. Jesus said in John 14, two different times, He said, if you love Me, you obey Me. If you love me, you keep my commandments. In fact, I love the way it's stated in 1 John 5.3. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Our love for God is viewed through keeping His commandments. Call them rules for the moment. Just to help us this in our own mind. And he finished that thought when he said, His commandments are not burdensome. God's commands are not heavy weights that we bear on our back. That weigh us down. God's commands liberate us. God's house rules allow us to experience life. They don't take it away from us. So whatever our background is, whatever our thoughts about legalism are, we're not talking about legalism. We're not talking about small-minded Christianity and rules keeping as a way of life. We're talking about obeying God's house rules because God's house rules give us more life. Okay, that's where we're at this morning. We're in week seven. We're winding down on our series, The Church as Family. And today's message title and subject is God's House 
and God's rules. God's house, God's rules for we who are members of His family. By the way, as a caveat, uh, this message, is, is, there's a lot of Scripture. You've got two pages. My apologies. You know, I always try and keep these fairly succinct and I don't always do a good job. There's a lot of Scripture references. We won't cover them all. Compared to some of the early messages in this series, this one might seem a little heavy. Uh, there's a lot of text and some of the subjects that we're talking about, they're, they're fairly serious. But I hope that out of that, we come through seeing God more fully as He is and having a better appreciation of why He has the house rules He has and how those help us to glorify Him and enjoy more of the fullness of life Jesus died to give us. So, hope you have a study sheet. God is holy. If you talk about God at all, holy is the key term God describes Himself by. And holy for, for different ones of us may have a different connotation uh, the Hebrew is Kadesh, and it means apartness, a sacred, separate. I like the term for this unique. Uh, if we, we, we say the term holy, we might think of a, a religious uh, image, maybe a church building or something like that. This doesn't capture what we're after. Uh, holy means not just separate, but it means uniquely distinct from anything and everything else. So holy isn't just that God's in heaven and we're on the earth. Holy is that God is absolutely unique. There's no one and there's nothing in all the universe that's remotely like God himself. God is absolutely unique. We could say it this way. God is absolutely fundamentally unique and the magnitude, really the immeasurable magnitude and significance of that uniqueness is so great and so vast that he must be treated in an absolutely unique way. God must be treated in an absolutely separate from everything and anyone else unique way. That's what we're talking about when we talk about holiness. Here's an analogy, and all analogies fall flat at some point, of course. If you considered a fire, a fire is the rapid oxidation of a substance to its fundamental state. Fires the rapid oxidation of a substance to its fundamental state. And so we love fire on one hand, don't we? If we're camping out, we want a campfire. And if you've seen the, the plains burn, you know, in the spring when they burn the fields to encourage new growth at night, it's glorious. It's this crazy, pretty view. But let's say my view of fire is, you know, fire's no big deal. And I don't have to respect fire. Because I call the shots here. Fire is what I say it is or isn't. And so if I go to a, a fire pit and I pick up some coals and I say, I don't care what fire is, and I pick up those coals. Or if I say, I don't care about that fire in the forest, I'm going to walk in there. It will make no difference whatsoever what my view of fire was. It doesn't matter. Because fire is true to itself. And fire does what fire does. And if I pick up those coals in my hands, my hands are going to burn. If I walk into that forest fire, I'm going to be consumed because fire is and fire does what fire does. It is absolutely true to its unique properties. My respect, my appreciation for it doesn't matter. That same thing is true of God. And God compares himself and his ways to fire. And this is a big thing for us. Guys, when we talk about holiness, if you remember back on the front end of this series, we were talking about family and love and welcome and it was kind of lighthearted and it pulls you in and it's like oh doesn't this feel good 
and you start talking about God's holiness and it feels you sort of feel the ceiling come down a little bit. But ultimately, the more we grasp God's holiness, the ceiling goes off. Our lives are enlarged because we see God as he is. So God compares himself to fire. So Deuteronomy 4.24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Did you know that when God loves someone, he loves them jealously like fire? His love is jealous and fiery, and God doesn't apologize for that. Hebrews 12.28 quotes that, and 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Like a fire, it doesn't matter if I say, Lord, I respect you as you should. God's a fire. God will do what God does. In Daniel 7, if you remember back into November and December, we looked at the phrase, the Son of Man in Luke's Gospel, looked at several different texts along that line, and Daniel 7 was one of them. And it's this vivid, vivid image of the Father and the Son, Jesus as the Son of Man. And listen to this description. In fact, to me, this is one of those passages in the Scripture that gets overlooked that is this vivid imagery of who God is and what He's like. So Daniel saw this. He saw the Ancient of Days take His seat on His throne. God the Father. His vesture was like white snow. His hair was like pure wool. Now, this is the thing. His throne was ablaze with flames. God is sitting on a throne and the throne is on fire. Its wheels, this, this throne has wheels on it. The wheels were burning fire. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before Him. So in this image, do you see this? God sitting on a throne. The throne is engulfed in flames. The wheels on the throne are in flames and a river not of water but a fire is coming out of this throne. This is the God you and I call Father. This fiery, holy God. Who could approach this throne? You and I could not approach this throne. In fact, in Daniel's imagery, it's the Son of Man who does. Jesus was the only one who could safely approach His Father in this fiery state, and He did that for us. Guys, this is the one we call our Father. He is a consuming fire. You don't mess with Him. We respect Him because of His holiness and His uniqueness. I've got to be careful in how much detail I go into because I'll go really long this morning. I'll point out in Leviticus, uh, God says there, Leviticus 19.2, uh, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 7, Be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. That term holy, Kadesh, is used over 500 times in the Old Testament. It's almost always applied to God himself. God has a point to make, and it's this. I'm holy. I'm not like you. I'm absolutely separate and unique. And that's what we need to know as members of his household. This all comes down. This all applies to us. So because God is holy, you remember in the Old Covenant, God had a house with the nation of Israel, right? In the wilderness, he's got a tent. And in Jerusalem, he's got a temple. But God told them, when you build the tent, this is the way you build it. When you build the house in Jerusalem, this is the way you build it. Guys, they didn't build the house as they saw fit. Just like Noah and the ark, God said, this is the way you build it. When God's house was built among men, God said, this is the way you build my house. This is what my house looks like. 
These are the dimensions. These are the materials. This wasn't up to them. God determined how the priesthood would offer and who could offer and who couldn't and what the offerings looked like. All of these things are great, but you see, this all reflects God's holiness. God says, this is my house, this tent or this temple. This is my house, and these are my house rules. Because I'm holy, you'll treat me a certain way and no other. Now, what you often see in the Scriptures is when God starts something new, He does it with a bang. And He does it so everyone knows there's a new sheriff in town, there's a new way of doing things, and God institutes these things with a bang. When He gave the law on Sinai, do you remember the imagery there? Thunder, lightning, fire, and cloud come down on the mountain. The trumpet blares. The people are terrified. That's what God wanted. He came down with a bang. Well, listen, when He instituted the law and now the nation is living under His holy, unique statutes, some guys put Him to the test right away. How holy is God? How fiery is He? And so God answered. And this is in Leviticus 10. Now remember, only Aaron's descendants could serve as the priests. So two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, they put coals in these fire pans, putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. The, the text is a little obscure, isn't it? They, they offered strange fire. Was it the wrong incense? Don't know. I'm not sure. Or when they went in or how they went in, not absolutely clear. But what we do know is what they did is not what God said to do. And they're doing it to Him in His house. And the text says, Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You know what? There was no warning. God didn't say, "By the way, hey, guys, please no, get back." They went in. They went in contrary to the commands He had given, and God consumed them in fire on the spot, in the moment. No second chance, because God is holy. And listen to what Moses said, verse three. These are Aaron's sons that just perished in God's presence. Moses, Aaron's brother, says, it is what the Lord spoke. This is what God talked about. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. You will not come into my house and treat me as you please. You who come into my house, who are in relationship with me, you will treat me as holy. And he put an exclamation point on it when he consumed two of Aaron's sons on the spot in the moment. I must be, I will be treated holy in my house. How many here know just offhand the story of Uzzah in 2 Samuel when they're taking the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem so that you have an image in your mind? During David's reign, the Ark of the Covenant, which had been lost to the Philistines, is brought back into the land. And David wants it brought into Jerusalem. And see if you're like me. When I read that story the first time, I'm reading the story, great, they're bringing the ark back. This is a good thing. They put it on a wooden wagon. They're pulling it in. And Uzzah the priest sees the wagon tip and the ark looks like it's going to fall off. So Uzzah being the sincere, godly guy like probably you or I would be, he puts his hand up to steady the ark so it doesn't fall off. And you know what God does for that nice act on Uzzah's part? Is this the way you read it? This is the way I read it the first time. God strikes him dead. Wow. God strikes him dead. What's with that? 
Because God was being treated less than holy. Why is that? Because they were moving his ark in a way he told them not to. That ark was never supposed to be on the wagon. They were dissing God in his home, the ark. Remember the ark of the covenant between the angels? That's where the glory, the presence of God dwelled. And they're treating his ark like they would anything else. I put it on my cart. I haul it to market. Nope. Wrong. And Uzzah was struck dead. Guys, this is the thing. God is holy. He's absolutely unique. He's absolutely separate from anything you and I can imagine on our own. And he says, I'm holy. And that means in my house, you treat me as holy. Treat me as holy. Now, this is the unique theme. God's holy. And he says he has house rules. And then he tells us we are his house. This is both really encouraging at one hand, and this is really terrifying on the other. So God's holy. Those who draw near to God, those who enter his house must be holy also. And then Paul tells us in the New Testament, by the way, you are God's house. Which means God's house rules apply to us today. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he'd set Timothy in the city of Ephesus. And he said, Tim, there's some things there that you need to take care of for me. You need to address some things. We'll mention a couple of those in a moment. But he says, so there in chapter three, he says, so, Tim, I'm hoping to come to you before long. But just in case I'm delayed, I'm writing to you so that you'll know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support or foundation of the truth. Tim, I hope to see you soon, but in case I'm late in case i'm delayed what i'm telling you is what god expects of you in his home in his house these are some of god's house rules timothy because now the church is god's house it's not just the bride of christ we typically talk about the role of the church with jesus absolutely true and good we're the bride jesus has purchased his bride for himself but we're also called in the new testament god's house his family members, sons and daughters, and his house. We are many things to God. Among them, we are his house. That means we collectively are the place God dwells. And just let this settle in for a minute. The God who came down on Sinai, the God who struck Nadab and Abihu, the God whose presence entered Solomon's temple with glory such that the priests had to run out that same God says He calls us collectively His house. This is mind-boggling. The church is God's house. We are the place He dwells. Uh, John 14, 23, I'll let you read on your own. 1 Timothy 3, Paul says it this way to the church at Corinth, you are a temple of God. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the fiery, holy God dwells in you. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Paul speaking singularly to the collective group, to the church in Corinth. He said, you are the church of God. Here's the language in Ephesians 2. Uh, you are of God's household, verse 19. Uh, verse 21, you're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, dwelling of God in the Spirit. You see, the church, we're not just God's sons and daughters. We're not just Jesus' bride. We're not just God's family. All of, all of those things we are. But we are, in addition, we are His house. We are His temple. We are collectively and individually the place 
God lives, inhabits on earth today. So you can imagine, if God says He's holy, and those who draw near to me must treat me as holy, and God has holy house rules so that we treat Him holy, do you think this has implications for you and I in the church today? I'll bet it does. On point three on your study sheet, Peter, this is from 1 Peter 1, verse 16, Pete says, quoting Leviticus, no different than Leviticus. Peter says, quoting that, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter applies that to the church, to Christians like you and me today. He quotes Leviticus, you must be holy. Why? Because I'm holy and you're mine. You belong to me. You are my house. You must be holy. Let me just run down. These are, these are some of God's house rules, okay? This is from 1 Timothy. So Paul told Timothy, establish this as the house rules in Ephesus. And these are, I'm just picking out a few of them. You could pick out others in other epistles as well as others in Timothy as well. But I just want to give you a sense of the flavor of what we're talking about. So in 1 Timothy 1, Paul says to Timothy, we are supposed to major on the majors. Tim, don't get caught up in arguments about myths and genealogies They just become argumentative. You become argumentative. There's no benefit in it. But he said the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So he says to Timothy, that's what we're aiming for. Not arguments. This is what we're aiming for. That's one of God's house rules. If I find myself devolving into just circular arguments with others, I'm breaking God's house rule. I get that. Okay, yeah, Lord, that's what you said. I'm missing the mark. Or in chapter 2, Just like Jesus had in the Gospels, Paul says God's house is a place where prayer is the norm. Prayer is the norm. So Paul said uh, to Timothy uh, that men in every place should lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Do you know what this means? If uh, I catch you with your hand in the cookie jar and you've got a cookie in your hand you're not supposed to, and I say, show me your hands. Do you want to show me your hands? No, you don't, right? I'm hiding the cookie. When I raise my hands to God, I'm saying, God, I'm hiding nothing from you. My hands are clean. My conscience is clear. I have no wrath and dissensions. I'm not embittered towards my brothers and sisters in Christ without wrath and dissension. And I'm praying. And I'm praying, by the way, today, thinking of our announcements, for kings and those in authority that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness. Thinking about those in authority and those who may be in authority. We're praying for them. Paul says one of God's house rules is it's a place characterized by prayer and not by division within the members of the body. We're praying for one another. This is an interesting one. God says also in that same chapter that the meeting of the church, when his house gets together, it's about him, not about us. And so he tells women, dress modestly. Isn't this interesting? Now, guys, listen, women are the fairest thing God ever made. Right? They're the loveliest creature. They're the loveliest of God's creation. Right? It's the, women are the last thing God's make. There's no, there's no problem with women's beauty, right? That's not what we're talking about. But, you know, for guys, our attention span, we go to the, what we can see with our eyes. Well, God says for gals coming into the household of faith, in God's holy house, dress in a way that doesn't cause unnecessary attention to your loveliness. Nothing wrong with your loveliness. All good, Right? But we want to be free to all focus on God. We're not making it about ourselves. Modestly. This would apply to guys too. But when we come, 
one of God's house rules is we're making it about God. We're not making it about glorifying ourselves. Uh, Chapter 3 there tells us one of God's house rules was the leadership God appoints in local churches are older brothers. I loved the term Francis Schaeffer used when he would talk to people. He was a fairly revolutionary figure uh, before some of you were born in the 70s, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But one of the th- he didn't call himself a pastor. He didn't call himself a role. He, he just said, I'm just an older brother in God's family. I'm an older brother. Well, that's what God says in the local church. Older brothers, godly guys who've lived life, been married, raised kids, learned wisdom. They're just examples for the rest of the flock. That's God's house rule. Older brothers, that's all we are. That's all they are. God says, don't... I love the way, uh, I think it was uh, Stedman, Ray Stedman said... Uh, if one pope over the whole church is a mistake, one pope in every church is a mistake too, thinking of Protestants. That God's rule was elders and deacons run the local church as examples, not lording it over. Isn't this good? I love also in chapter 5, this respectful behavior toward each other. Chapter 5, thinking again, this goes back to some of our earlier lessons in this series, on this life as family, the church as a family, you've got this whole chapter that's devoted to the way people interacted with each other as family members. So Paul told Timothy, if you're addressing, Timothy's not a very old guy, if you're addressing an older man, show him the respect that you would a father. If you're addressing an older woman, address her with the respect and decorum you would your elderly mother. Or Tim, if you or other guys or other gals are interacting with members of the opposite sex, treat each other like your siblings. I'm not. I'm out out to get you. Sex isn't the issue. I'm out to bless you. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. It's this family thing. If the ladies in your church and your church family are older and can't provide for themselves, you guys provide for them. You take care of them. It's this great model of. Family life. But these are God's house rules. And later in chapter 6, he'll tell us that we who have much should be giving to those who have less. Uh, The rich among you. uh, I'm going to forget the verse right now. But anyway, to be generous and ready to share, that's what we who have much should be doing towards other members of the body of Christ. Those are some of God's house rules. God says, in my house, this is the way I do things. This is the way you're to do things. These are the ways we treat each other as holy. I'll just mention 1 Corinthians, two different chapters there. Bill Biter's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper here later. In chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, God told them, when you get together to remember Jesus in His death and resurrection, this is the way you do it, not that way. They were abusing each other. They weren't thoughtfully of each other. They did it around the meal. Some had lots, some had none. There was this total disrespect. And so God says, no, that is not the way you do this. This is not the way you honor me or bless each other. This is the way you do it. Chapter 14, he concludes and he says, the meetings of the church should be orderly. God's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. And we're to bring that same kind of order mentality to the meetings of the church. Well, let me wind down in this direction. I'll take a few minutes to wind down, but I'm winding down. We bring this theme, God's holy. He has house rules based on His holiness. 
and we, the church, are his house. So his house rules apply to us. Way back in week two, we sort of asked this question. We referenced this issue. Am I safe? Am I accepted in God's house and family? And we said, yes, absolutely. See, our righteousness based on Christ, not not ourselves. We are saved. We're in God's family by Christ's doing, right? John 5, 24, we've already passed out of judgment and into life. That's, that's true for all of us. So am I safe in God's family? And I say, absolutely, you're safe in God's family. But maybe I say, well, what if I sin? Am I still safe in God's family? I say, you're still safe in God's family. Sin disrupts fellowship, doesn't it? Both between God and with our brothers and sisters. But we come to grips with that. We confess, we repent, we restore if that's necessary. And we go on, right? Because we're family and that's what families do. And somebody says, well, yeah, but what if I choose to keep sinning and keep sinning and keep sinning? Then won't you hate me and call me names and and kick me out? And and then I say, well, maybe let's talk about that. And this is where this goes in some of the texts we'll look at. So depending on the severity and the longevity of the sin, there are repercussions for sin, aren't there? There are repercussions. God is a faithful father. Hebrews 12 talks about this. He disciplines us. He trains us for our good. And so if I continue in sin or you continue in sin, there will not only be a disruption of fellowship between vertically, our relationship with God and horizontally with others, but sometimes God will bring in disciplinary steps that may be painful. May be painful. So, for instance, in Acts 5, you know, early stages of the church, the church is young, right? And they're still just coming to grips with what does this mean? The Holy Spirit's come down, filled us. We spoke with languages we didn't learn. People are coming to Christ right and left. We're just getting our feet on the ground. We're figuring this whole thing out. And along comes Acts chapter 5. And friends, this is a story just like Leviticus 10. This is just like Nadab and Abihu in the New Testament, in the church. So I say, do you guys ever hear this or did you grow up thinking this? Uh, The God of the Old Testament, he's harsh. He's judgmental. But the God of the New Testament, he's loving and gracious and merciful. Have you heard people say that? You know, some people have a hypothesis that the God of the Old Testament is not the same God as the New Testament because they appear so different. And you know, to that we say, you know what? No, God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, God of the Old Testament, holy, God of the New Testament, holy. You know, God never changes. He cannot change. He's perfect as he is. If he changed, he wouldn't be perfect. He'd cease to be God. God's perfect, never changes. Is is the God we call Father, is he the same God that may appear harsh? And judgmental in the Old Testament? Guess what? He is. And you see it in Acts 5. And this is the setting. The early church, many in the church, are selling property, houses, whatever. They're getting the money. And they're giving it to the church, to the apostles, so it can be distributed to folks who have needs. This is all good. All good. Well, there's a duo, a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. And they say, hey, we'll get in on some of that. They sell some property. They sell it for, let's just say, $10,000. And they say, we're going to give that to the church. So they bring it to Peter. They lay it down at his feet. They said, Pete, we're in with you guys. We sold our land for $10,000. Here's the $10,000. Now, the church is God's house. And they're offering worship in God's house, right? That's what we call this sacrificial giving, right? Finances, this is worship. It's an act of worship. So they come into God's house with a lie on their lips, deceit in their hearts, 
This is the offering. This is the act of worship they bring into God's house. And so what does God do? So is it okay that they sold their land for that price? That's okay. Is it okay that they gave the church 8,000 instead of 10,000? That's okay too. What isn't okay? Lying in God's house isn't okay. And so Pete questions Ananias and Ananias says, oh, that's the deal. And God strikes him dead. A chance to repent. Now says Sapphira, did words? And Pete gives her in such a price. Pete says, Sapphira, did you sell your land for such and such a price? Because, see, they're saying we sold it and we gave the whole proceeds to the church. It was their money. They can do whatever they want with it. That's not the issue. uh, Sapphira, did you sell the property for this price? And she says, she could stop right there, right? This is an opportunity to tell the truth. But she says, oh, yeah, that was it. And God strikes her dead, too. And the text says fear ran through the church. God says, this is my house and I will be and I must be treated holy by those who come in relationship with me. Exclamation point. Just like Leviticus 10. Is the God of the New Testament holy? He's absolutely holy. No difference. God is the same. Guys, the reason that we, the reason for you and I today that we tend to think of judgment as sort of not depicting God, who God is and what He's like, is because, thankfully, Because Jesus took his judgment for us, right? We're in the day and the age of grace. Jesus dies on the cross for your sins and mine, past, present, and future. God's holy, righteous wrath poured out on his son. How much wrath is left for me? It's it's done. The fire has burned. My sins have been burned up in that consuming sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. They're gone. There's still fellowship issues, aren't there? You and I experience God's grace and His mercy all the time because Jesus took the hit. God is no less holy today than He was then. By the way, these passages, Acts 5, this is not a salvation passage. Please don't read that and assume they're not saved. Okay? Please don't. This is not a salvation passage. God says, you're in my house and you're abusing me and I won't tolerate it. This is not a salvation passage. Okay? Don't read it that way. Ah, there's too much good stuff to go over. Let me get down to um, so many choices, so much to share. So, you know, Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. Uh, I'll bet you know some people like this. The prodigal son lives in his father's house, but he wants a lifestyle that's a little different that dad won't put up with. So what does he do? He leaves, right? I know my dad has house rules. I don't want to comply with them. I'm going to leave. So I can go live the way I want. See, that was rational. My lifestyle won't fit in my dad's house. I've got to go do it someplace else. That was rational. Of course, he came to his senses later. Wasn't a good choice. When I was 18, and, and I knew a lot. I knew a lot. And I had a conversation with my dad in the entry hall of our house. And I was letting him know how out of vogue one of his house rules was. And out of tune he was with the reality of Mike's life. And my dad could look very serious. And, he, you know, he's my same size. So he looks me in the eye, toe to toe, and he says, son, the door is right there. If you don't like the rules of this house, you leave. See, now, I knew my dad meant it. I've told this to other parents, and they've looked at me like, you're kidding! No, it was a good thing. It's a good thing he did. And, you know, I knew. I, I'm a senior in high school. What am I going to do? 
I swallowed hard, swallowed my pride, kept the house rules, right? And apologized to my parents notably and repeatedly a year later when I went away to school and, and realized how good I had it under their house and under their house rules. But see, that's the thing. Sometimes you'll know a Christian who says, you know what? I'm not digging, I'm not feeling the, the house rules right now. I'm going to go do something else. And they do, and they walk away. They walk away from the family. They walk away from the Lord and His house, the gathering of the saints. Other times, we think that we can live in God's house, break His house rules with impunity, and it's all good. It's all good. And that's 1 Corinthians 5. And if you remember that story, there's a guy in Corinth, and he's having sex with his stepmom. And the Corinthians think, we're broad-minded. That's okay with us. That's not the way we would do things, but we're okay with that because we're loving. Because we've got grace and mercy. So that's okay. We're being broad-minded. God says, well, no. So Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. We don't have time to nuance all this, guys. So... Just the main point's the main point here. Paul says, when I told you that, I wasn't talking about people in the world. I was talking about people in God's house. Not outsiders. You can't leave the world. The world is made up of sinners. I'm not telling you to leave the world and sinners. I'm telling you not to associate with so-called Christians. If their life is characterized by sexual immorality, by covetousness, I want what God gave you. Is that a problem? And I want what God gave you. Is that a problem? I covet what you have. I'm an idolater. I'm worshiping other gods, other things, other forms of God. I'm a drunkard. I abuse alcohol. I abuse drugs as a way of life. I do it routinely. I'm a swindler. I don't break your, into your house and steal, but I cheat you in my business practices. I'm a swindler. God says through Paul, don't hang out with so-called Christians who dishonor me in my house that way we're not being broad-minded we're not being gracious when we do this god says i have rules and i will be treated holy in my house and this doesn't fit the bill i'll pass over the next text uh, you've got a list there starting with matthew 18 friends there's a number of texts not just matthew 18 when you talk about church discipline and the freedom or the lack of freedom to continue to meet with someone as a Christian in God's house, there's a number of texts that say you're not free based on someone's commitment to a certain order of sin. You're not free. You don't have to go through the steps of Matthew 18. There's a number of other texts that talk about the same things. Let me, let me officially wind down, close with this. So this is Palm Sunday. We're not what's typically called a liturgical church. There's much of the, the liturgies that we don't follow, but this is Palm Sunday. It's the day we commemorate Jesus riding triumphantly into Jerusalem. Remember, it's the high water mark, right? He's coming on that little donkey, and the crowds are receiving him. They're hailing him as their king, their Messiah, their Savior King. And he rides in, and the interesting thing in Matthew 21, he goes to the temple, and he turns the tables over. And he drives people out and he says, this is my father's house and you've made it a den of robbers and thieves. My father's house is not to be treated like this. My father has house rules. You're breaking them. Matthew 21. Later that same week, Matthew 23, Jesus is leaving Jerusalem 
And you know what he says there? He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it's a lament. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to him. I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. You wouldn't have it. So listen to his words. He says, behold, your house is left to you desolate. Whose house? Their house. Whose house is it no longer being called? He's not calling the temple God's house anymore. He says, that's your house. And it's desolate. It's empty. God's not there. That change took place in that last week. If you read Ezekiel, you'll see God left the Old Testament temple in Ezekiel. Before the destruction there, he left it. He said, I'm not hanging out the way you're treating me in my house. I wonder, would the God of the Old Testament who left the temple in Ezekiel's day and in Jesus' day, would he leave a church? Would he leave a temple today? I wonder. Would he leave a church, a house dwelling today? I think he would. Is he the same? He's the same. Is he holy? He's holy. So this is out of Revelation chapter 2. This is so interesting. Revelation, let's just say it's written around 90, 95. Paul had written Timothy, let's just say around 60. So you've got another generation at the church in Ephesus, okay? 35 years later, let's just say. And Jesus addresses them through the Apostle John. And he says this, you guys are state-of-the-art church. You're doing all these great things well. You major on doctrine. It's all cool. So good, so good, so good. And then he says this, but there's one little problem, and it's this. You've lost your first love for me. And that sounds like a little thing, maybe. You've lost your first love. You know what his threat is? He says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your candlestick. You know what that means? The candle is their, the representation, the imagery that represents their church. A candle with a fire on top, right? A candlestick. He says, I'm going to remove it. You won't be my church if you don't repent. You're not mine. Guys, if you've driven through the city, Topeka or other cities, and seen one church building after another, after another, that's either empty or it's the church mice and a few, frankly, older females, And you know, once I don't doubt that God was visiting, was habiting those churches, but he's not today. And in Revelation 3, when Jesus addresses the last of those seven churches, Laodicea, remember the imagery is Jesus is outside the door. He's not even in the church. He's not in his own house. And he knocks on the door and says, hey, if you'll open up, I'll come in. If Jesus walked into his house here today, what would he see? Are we treating him holy? Do we have a view of God that's big enough for God, that God is holy, the God of Daniel 7, in flaming thrones, flaming fire, river of fire? Do we realize that's our Father? And are we treating our Father as holy? And are we treating our Savior as holy? Are we honoring His house rules in the way we treat Him and treat each other? And guys, we've got to break the mold in our own mind that holiness is a burden to be born. That holiness means we are more like our Father. We are more like our Savior. It's not a burden to be born. It's a badge of honor. We are more like the one who loved us and saved us. Sorry for going a little long. Let's pray. Father, thanks. Thanks that you are who you are. Thanks that you are true to yourself. Lord, thanks that... 
It's out of your character and nature that you in love sent Jesus to pay the penalty due our sins. Lord, thanks that the grave could not hold that perfect, righteous, holy Savior down and that He rose from the dead. Lord, thanks that He's at your right hand today and that we, Lord, by your grace, have become not only your children, but your house, the place you live. Father, we pray that both as individually, individuals and collectively, Lord, would you help us to treat you as holy and to glorify your Son in His name. Amen.